Welcome to Into the Verse, the Parsha podcast where we dive deep into the verses to share new and unexpected insights into the text you thought you knew. Welcome to Into the Verse. This is Ari Levison, and I am joined today by my colleague, Adina Blaustein. Ari, I'm really excited. Well, it is Parshat Vayigash. We are neck deep in the Joseph story. We're two Parshiot in already to the Joseph story. We have another two to go. So I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about something that is going to be uh, focused very heavily in our Parsha, but it's really going to span the entire Joseph story. I want to talk about actually something that happened at the very end of the Joseph story. Now, you're probably thinking I'm talking about Parsha Vayechi, right? When Yosef dies. Yeah. Actually, not what I'm talking about. Okay. Because there's one more time after Yosef's death that he does come up in the Torah. You know what I'm talking about? I just want to make sure I understand the question. You're saying the last time that Joseph appears? Yeah. Okay. I think I got this. In Exodus, I think in Parsha B'Shalach, when uh, Moshe is preparing to lead B'nai Israel out of Egypt, very exciting climactic time, Moshe suddenly has to go on an errand, and that is to collect Joseph's bones to make good on the promise that had been unfulfilled for hundreds of years, which is to bury Joseph's bones in the land of Israel. Yeah. So while everybody's busy you know, with their matzah and packing up, Moshe's on this errand. Right, exactly. And there is a, a really interesting midrash from the Tanhuma on this. Are you talking about the midrash of how Moshe got the Nile to to kind of raise up the bones? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I am, right. It's like your question, like, how did Moshe get the bones from the Nile? How did he even yeah. know they were in the Nile? I remember learning this midrash when I was in, in day school. Okay, so what I remember is... Moshe had this problem, right? Joseph's bones were at the bottom of the Nile. I don't know why. I don't remember that part. The Midrash actually starts off, he has another problem, which he doesn't even know where they are because the Torah doesn't oh, actually tell us okay. they're in the Nile. And that's the first half of the Midrash is, you know, how he how he finds out where the bones are. But yeah, then he finds out they're in the Nile and he's like, how do I get them? I don't have a submarine. To get to the bottom of the Nile. Okay. So he, I think he writes down God's name. So it's not God's name. He actually writes out, something else. Um, he takes a, a bundle of something. doesn't actually tell us what. Okay. Um, and he writes on it the words, Alei Shor, which literally seems to mean, uh, rise up, O ox. Oh, yeah, which is kind of the symbolic name for Joseph. And I think in the blessings that Jacob gives him, he refers to Joseph as a shore. Right. And, and not just he refers to him as shore, but this is actually a quote from the blessing that Jacob gives Joseph. Part of it says, oh, Alei okay. Shor. So it, the Midrash says that Moshe wrote those words on this piece of whatever, threw it into the Nile, and what happens? And the bones rise up. So it's a fascinating Midrash, but it's actually not the end of the story. There's another Midrash on Parsha Kitisa that picks up the thread of this story and takes it one more chapter forwards. So just to contextualize, because I love playing this guessing game. You and all of our listeners. Right? <laughs> Kitisa's talking about the Egel Hazav, right? Yeah, talking about the Egel Hazav. So where in the Egel Hazav would this come up? Okay, so my wild guess, because something that I, I wonder if I'm connecting a thread, but um, something to do with how they made the Egel Hazav. Is you're, that at all right where on. you're going yep. with this? Okay, because 
Okay, I think I get why I mixed up um, how Moshe got the bones to rise up because there's another midrash about the how they even made the Egel Hazav, something with writing God's name or something about throwing something <laughs> into a fire, yeah? And like somehow the Egel kind of emerged from that, I guess, I don't know, magic. Yep, yep, Adina, you're right on. The backstory is that after the eagle, after the golden calf happens, uh, Moses confronts Aaron, who seems to be responsible for creating, for forming the calf, um, and says, like, hey, hey, Aaron, what's up? Why'd you, why'd you do this? What happened? And Aaron actually says, well, I, I didn't really create it. I took all of this gold jewelry, I threw it into the fire, and out came this golden calf. It was just magical. And so the Midrash here is filling in, well, how did that actually happen, right? Like, why did a calf come out of the fire if Aaron just threw a bunch of stuff in? Why did it not come out just like a lump of gold? Yeah, it's a pretty good question. So the Midrash says, along with all of this gold jewelry that was thrown in, it says, Natal haluach shekatav alav Moshe ale shor. The very board that Moses used to summon the bones of Joseph from the Nile, that got thrown in with all of the gold jewelry into the fire, and out came the golden calf. Wow. So two reactions. Firstly, it's probably a good idea not to just learn Midrashim by reading the little Midrash says. <laughs> probably a good idea to, just like with Torah, study it inside and look at the text because I feel like this Midrash is just part of my my memories of, of growing up and I never really studied it inside. And what a fascinating connection. And then number two... I mean, I'm just struck by, wow, why are these two episodes connected? Like, why would the rabbis in in kind of articulating these ideas want to stress this direct connection between these two episodes? They just seem completely different. Right. right. That's that's the real question we have to ask when we read a midrash like this. What what are the rabbis getting at? What are they suggesting? And And to me, it sounds like they're suggesting that the golden calf was somehow meant to resemble Joseph, right? Like yeah. th- this this slip, which basically says, hey, come Joseph, come out, was thrown into the fire, and out comes the golden calf. And it, it's as if the rabbis were saying, when you look at the golden calf, what you're really supposed to see is Joseph. Like Joseph resurrected, like Joseph's bones coming to life. It's very creepy. Right, right. Now, Adina, I don't know about you, when I look at a golden statue of a cow, I don't really think... Oh, hey, that's Joseph. Yeah, it's funny. So I want to give a metaphor that might explain how Chazal saw this. And that metaphor is actually Taco Bell. Okay. <laughs> now, I keep kosher. I've never eaten Taco Bell. But what I've heard is that everything at Taco Bell tastes the same. They have like dozens and dozens of items on their menu, and yet it all tastes the same. And the reason is because essentially they're just different arrangements of the exact same ingredients. They're just like, there's only so many ways you can arrange like, you know, cheese and beef and some vegetables. And it's basically all the same thing. So like, you know, a Crunchwrap Supreme might look different than a Doritos Locos taco. Um, But when you break it down, right, they're really just like tortilla and beef and cheese and some veggies. Yes, I had to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I could see how... Taco Bell's marketing team might then have a challenge of how do you entice customers that the menu is varied and delicious. 
Right. And, and the way they do that is they, they put it in different packaging and it looks totally different and it looks like they have this big menu. So <laughs> where I'm going with this is that maybe Chazal were really the, the astute customer who realized that these are just two different packaging of the same ingredients. Maybe that maybe the, if we break down the golden calf to its ingredients, we will realize mm-hmm. that it really is a manifestation of Joseph. So let's just think for a minute, like what are the essential ingredients of the golden calf? So I'd say probably the, the easiest one is, well, it's a calf. And then, you know, it's not just any calf, it's a golden calf. And then what do the people do to it? They bow down to it, right? So, okay, calf, golden, people bow down to it. Another important attribute is it's man-made. And then finally, probably like the most significant is that they conceived of this golden calf as a replacement for God. They say, This is your God, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So it's a calf, it's golden, they bow down to it, it's man-made, and it's conceived as a replacement for God. To me, those are five really essential ingredients to the golden calf. Okay. Let's look at Joseph now and see if we can find those ingredients in Joseph too. Um, All right. Okay, so let's start with the first one, a calf. And you already said this, uh, you mentioned this before. That's right. In Yaakov's blessings, he turns to Joseph and says, Ale shore. So perhaps the calf can be linked with the shore, an ox. You know, a calf is basically a young ox. It's like, a, it's just a young, it's a young ox. So the Joseph calf ox connection, I think, is pretty clear. But it also has to be gold. Was there ever a time when Joseph was all decked out in gold? Sure. I mean, his whole royal identity probably meant that he was wearing fine garments, gold all the time. Right. And I, I don't know about you, but but the the image, and perhaps there's a textual proof of this as well, but whenever he encounters the brothers in Egypt, it almost seems like he's purposefully bedecked in royal finery. Like he almost makes a show out of emphasizing his special status. So I definitely would associate gold and kind of a, a, a special appearance yeah. with Joseph. We don't even have to imagine what Joseph looked like wearing this gold because the Torah actually does tell us when Pharaoh kind of anointed him as second in command, he put on Joseph a ravid zahav, so that gold chain. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like one of those details, like, I don't know about you, I never noticed. It's just like, okay, yeah, you put like royal garment. If you would ask me what what did he dress Joseph up in? I would have been like, I don't know, like royal stuff. Yeah, I would have like, just what said Egyptian royal fancy wear? stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, because it's like one of those those like subtle details that in it d- seems to be kind of irrelevant. But now we see, oh wait a minute, Joseph was wearing this golden chain, and presumably he always wore this golden chain. This was part of his uniform in his position as second in command mm-hmm. in Egypt was this golden chain, and here he is walking around all day, dressed in gold. Okay, cool. So, so far we have two ingredients. What's the next one? So it, it's not enough just for him to be golden and a calf, right? It also matters how the Israelites relate to him, right? And in the, the golden calf, one of the most uh, critical things is that the Israelites bow down to it. I mean, so that... time. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even I mean, have to finish my sentence, right? I know. And it's already, I mean, the image of Joseph is the dreams 
and how he imagines everyone bowing down to him. And then that, in fact, happens in reality that they right. do end up bowing down to him. Right. And the brothers, the original Israelites, the children of Israel, bow down to him not once, not twice, but actually three separate times. The Torah records them bowing down to him. So yeah. this imagery of the brothers, the children of Israel, bowing down to this golden calf figure, it's really starting to add up. Another key ingredient, the calf was man-made. And if you think about right, who made the calf, it was Aaron. So mm-hmm. now who decked Joseph out in gold and put him in this position where everyone would bow down to him? Right? Like who made Joseph into an idol? Oh, I see your point. In a sense... Joseph wasn't born into royalty. Pharaoh kind of made him royal. He appointed him into this position of power. So I guess, in a sense, you could say that Joseph, too, was man-made. Right. And listen to this verse in, in Genesis 41, 45. Okay. This is the verse where it says that Pharaoh put him into this position. So Paro gives him a name, a totally new name. He says, I'm going to call you Tzafna Paneach. And then, and he gives him Osnat, the daughter of Potiphera, Kohen On, the priest of On, Leisha as a wife. So he gives him a new name and a new wife. And then, Joseph went out on the land of Egypt. It almost sounds like, okay, Joseph already existed. Pharaoh didn't make Joseph. But the Egyptian royalty, the, the second in command, the one that everyone's bowing down to, the one that's decked out in gold... Well, his name's not Joseph. His name is Stafnat Paneach. He has like an alter ego that Pharaoh just kind of willed into existence. Pharaoh created this alter ego with a new name and a new wife. And then this language of Vayetse Yosef, Joseph like went out. It almost sounds like this new character emerged and was born and went out in front of Egypt. And that language of Vayetse, listen to what Aaron says when he describes making the golden calf. He says, Right, I threw all of this into the fire. This calf, it, it just emerged, right? It, Joseph here, it's, it's just emerging. Both Pharaoh and Aaron, they're creating this thing and then that thing emerges. And look how cool this is. This was uh, Exodus 32, 24. And this is when Aaron tells Moses that this is how I created the golden calf. And immediately after that, look how Moses responds. So Moses saw that the people were out of control, this word aharon that Aaron let them get out of control so that they became a menace to anyone who opposed them. But look at that word, ki pirao aharon. Those I'm letters, pei, resh, ayin, hey. What does it spell? It spells paro, and it's just incredible wordplay here. Right. Because it's such a bizarre and weird verb to use in this context. But it does seem like it's almost the Torah's way of, you know, underlining with a thick yellow highlighter. There's a paro here in this story. There's a connection back to to paro's presence that you should be noticing. Right, exactly. And it's almost as if Moses saw what Aaron did and said, ah, ki paro aharon. Aaron, he's Paro. Yeah, you're acting like Paro in this moment. Right. Maybe. Right. You created an idol. <laughs> it's, it's wordplay, but it, it's, it's fascinating. Okay, there was one more ingredient that I think is really like the most essential ingredient in all with the golden calf, which is that 
it takes the place of God. They say, This is your God, Israel, who took you out of Egypt. So, is there any time where we see Joseph taking the place of God? So, when you were listing the ingredients and we got to that one, my heart almost kind of thudded because the end of Genesis, when Joseph and the brothers meet up and they're overcome and they're... I mean, they're really just thinking about the the past few decades, and I think they're just in this state of just utter shock and not really sure how to move forward. And one of the ways I think that Joseph tries to calm them down is by saying, um, "Hatachet elokim," like like Anochi. Um, yeah, yeah. Those. So let's let's look at the verses, right? So we'll start in Genesis forty five, verse five. This is right after Joseph reveals himself to the brothers. And as you said, they're in a state of shock. And he says, Don't be distressed. Don't reproach yourselves. Because you have sold me here. Because God has actually sent me ahead in order to provide food for you and so that you can come down here and I can take care of you. In other words... So you can kind of read this as like Joseph saying... It was all for the best. It's all okay. This was God's master plan you know, kind of assuaging the brothers of their guilt. Right. And and then a few verses later in verse 8, he says, right? You did not send me here. Right? God's the one who sent me here. But you mentioned something else because Joseph tries to make this point to the brothers. He tries to explain to them, this is all part of God's plan. It wasn't your fault. God is the master puppeteer pulling all the strings. But this message seems not to fully get through to them because yes. way later at the very end of Genesis, after Jacob dies, they come back to Joseph. And I think they're so worried that now that dad has passed on, now the revenge is going to happen. And um, they almost seem beside themselves. And they either lie or they're sharing with Joseph a conversation that he wasn't party to, which is basically telling Joseph, oh, before dad died, he wanted us to resolve things. He wanted us to, to forgive each other, to forgive and forget and move on. And is, it's that in that context, I think, that Joseph says that line that I was alluding to earlier, Yeah, exactly. So let's look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 17. They give this message in the name of their late father, Jacob, and they say, Ana sana et pesha right? Please now forgive the sins of your brother and their iniquity. It almost, you know, that these language like sana fesha right? It almost sounds like they're like they're doing like slichot. Right? It's like they're like on Yom yeah. Kippur, like, you know, please, oh great master, forgive us. Yeah. And they go even further and Vilchugamachiv Vayaplub Lifanav Vayamru Hinenu. They come before Joseph. They throw themselves before him. and said, we're going to be servants to you. Just don't kill us. Like, let us be servants to you. I would take it a step further and say, we're your slaves, not just servants. Yeah, not even servants, right? Slaves. Like, we're, you know, yeah. you're a master. You're, we're your slaves. Like, And Joseph is taken aback by this. In verse 19, as you said, right, Joseph responds, like, am I in place of God? By itself, this might not seem like such a big deal, but 
when you read it, first of all, in the context of everything that Joseph's already said to the brothers of, you didn't send me here. God did this. This is all part of God's master plan. And then you add in the golden calf, and which I think is what Chazal are trying to draw our attention to. You realize like, wait a minute, this is a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Like treating someone like they're God. That's what the golden calf was. That was terrible. You know, I think all of this is really just leading us to ask, how could the brothers have done such a terrible thing in treating Joseph like a god or or like replacing God with Joseph, basically treating him like a golden calf? And, you know, what makes this question even more surprising and and even, even greater is think about where this story started. Think about their relationship with Joseph way back in Parsha Vayeshev when we started reading this story. They wanted to kill him. This is an incredibly extreme difference. It's like a 180 flip. Neither of them are good. They're both pretty bad. You don't want to kill him. You don't want to treat him like God. But how did this, how did it go from one to another? And, and I, you know, I know the, the steps that I know A led to B led to C. And we know the story and, and how the progression went. But when you stop looking at the trees and you zoom out and look at the whole forest, that's a really remarkable 180 flip. Yeah. We know so much about the plot twists. But what's going on emotionally, psychologically is, is a mystery. Right. So if Joseph really it was an earlier version of the golden calf, then maybe we can look at the golden calf and try to understand that story. And, and maybe understanding the story of the golden calf will help us understand the story of Joseph. That's great. Like all good intertextual studies, right, right. Uh, both yeah. stories can help us understand each in a clearer way. So truth is, I think we can ask a really similar question about the golden calf. In fact, I would say it's probably the question that anyone has to ask when reading the story of the golden calf, which is, how could they do such a thing, especially after experiencing the Exodus? They went so far as to say in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, who took you out of the land of Egypt. How could they say such a thing? How could they just replace God so easily? And how could they think that this man-made idol was their God? It sounds absurd. Yeah, it really does. So to me, Rav Hirsch has really a, a great answer to this, which is that the actual sin wasn't making the golden calf. Okay. The actual sin was back in chapter 32, verse 1, when they said, This man Moses, Asher halucha me'eretz mitzrayim, who took us out of Egypt. We don't know where he is. This man, Moses, who took us out of Egypt. Right? This here was the real root of their sin. They never fully appreciated God's role in bringing them out of Egypt. And they attributed that to Moses. Right? And so then naturally, right, now that Moses is gone, they need to replace him. And you know, better to replace Moses with you know, someone who's not going to wander off on you and, you know, disappear on top of a mountain. So uh, a statue is a, is a good replacement. But they weren't replacing God. They were replacing Moses. This, the real sin of the golden calf was that they never appreciated God's role in taking them out of Egypt. So how does this explain our question in the Joseph story about how the brothers acted? Right? Remember, Chazal is suggesting that Joseph was the original golden calf, then there should be a parallel here. So Adina, if the problem of the golden calf was the Israelites failing to see God's hand in bringing them out of Egypt, what may have been the problem in the Joseph story? Yeah, 
I think the problem that emerges is their failure to see God's hand in bringing them to Egypt and their, I think, resistance to seeing that grand master plan and to, to join Joseph in having this panoramic view of the steps leading up to this. Exactly, right? And, and as we read before, right, Joseph tries to tell them, Lo atem hena, ki elokim, right? You were not the ones who sent me here. You thought you were, but we were all right. just puppets and part of God's plan. And, and of course, the brothers, they, they never really appreciate that. Till the very end, they have trouble appreciating that. You know, in, in last year's Vayishev episode, Daniel and I actually talked about how this really seems to be the whole journey of Joseph's life is actually about realizing that God is the master puppeteer orchestrating all these crazy events of his life. And it, I think if in the beginning, he really doesn't. And I think one thing you see at the end is that he does learn this and he becomes the champion of this message. And I think that's really one of Joseph's crowning achievements, at, at least in terms of his personal growth, is learning to really see the hand of God in his life. And, you know, there, there is no real end of the story here, right? It doesn't say that the brothers responded, oh, Joseph, I get, see, you're right. It's it kind of open-ended. There's no perfect resolution. And that's, I think, part of the reason why it lends itself to being read in different ways. Right. And I, and I would at least hope that maybe some of this message of Joseph got through to the next generation and maybe made that 210 years in Egypt a little bit more bearable. I think certainly Moshe's actions in bringing his bones out of Egypt is almost meant to be a reminder to the nation as they're trekking through the wilderness at every step of the way, hey, God's hand, God's hand. I'm almost imagining, you know, through through that journey through the wilderness, there's this casket that they see, you know, very visibly wow. kind of on their caravan. And they're almost meant to look at it and realize that man who saw God's hand in everything we need to take him back to the land. We need to restore him back to the land. It's almost like a, a, a symbol of he stood for, I see God's hand in my life. We need to realize that we see God's hand in, in our lives as well. Uh, Adina, I'm like literally getting chills as you're saying that. It's so powerful. Like, that's totally right. Like they were carrying this casket of Joseph with them as they left Egypt. Right? And it, it was important for them to take his casket with them as a reminder of this, this lesson that Joseph stood for. Like this was his last message. His last thing he says to them is like, remember, this is part of God's plan. He is bringing you here. Yeah. And I just realized something else, which is it's Joseph himself who has the foresight to insist that his bones are taken out, right? He makes them swear that when you leave and I know you will take my bones out with you. Adina, there was something I wasn't planning on bringing up here, but now that we're talking about this, I, 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 have to, I have to. We're talking about Joseph's final message to the Israelites, this message of God is the one behind all of this. God's the one who brought you here. God's the one who's going to take you out. And, and there's one phrase which really becomes, um, it almost becomes like Joseph's like catchphrase and, and the last phrase that he's like remembered for which is pakod yifkod etcham. God will surely yes. redeem you. Pakod yifkod. Yes. He says that multiple times. And not just does he say pakod yifkod etcham, but he, he says, God is going to take you up from this land, to the land which he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That 
word pakod, a double word pakod, actually comes up in the Dolden Calf episode. At the end of the story, um, God says, he's actually talking about how he's going to punish people, and it's a totally different meaning. Um, and he says, yeah. Which means like on the day of that I, of my, rec- of my, uh, like my reckoning, remembering, I will remember the, the sins. But the literal meaning aside, here we have that double language of Pakot again, and that's recalling that final message of Joseph. And the very next chapter starts off, God tells Moses, right? Get up from here. Yes. That same exact yes. phrase, together with this double language of Pakod, which is recalling Joseph's message at the end of his life. And that message for that generation, and I think really for all future generations, is God is behind it all. God's the one who brought you here. God's the one who's going to take you out. Anytime in your life that you feel lost or you feel alone or you feel like, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, God's behind it all. That's this week's episode. To listen to last year's episodes, as well as our world-famous Parsha and Holiday videos, head on over to olivebeta.org and sign up for a membership. This episode was recorded by Ari Levison together with Adina Blaustein. This episode was produced by Evan Wiener. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Our senior editor is Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.